Please uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. The reason uh, George uh, has been going to this uh, food distribution uh, location is uh, to um, demonstrate that this is something that we can do as a church. So he has uh, sort of uh, led the way and he's looking for others to follow. Now, if he uh, made you a little uncomfortable as he talking about uh, being fatigued or needing Tylenol after he's done, uh, there will be other opportunities. For example, uh, John Bailey here and George are currently working on a, a, a program, uh, that's not maybe the best word, a opportunity where uh, John is going to acquire uh, some free cut flowers from a nearby establishment. So uh, one of the ways uh, you might be able to serve is uh, to uh, get, gather, the, get these flowers and bring them to somebody who's uh, recovering at a home or a convalescent center. So there's another way that we can uh, be the hands of Christ. And uh, as I've uh, pointed out in the past, we're still looking for ideas. If you have an opportunity where we can reach out to the community, uh, if you have an idea for that, see George. So let's turn, please, to John chapter 10 as we begin a new chapter. John chapter 10. We know our Lord and Savior by name, and his name is Jesus. But the Bible also refers to Jesus using many titles. He is the Alpha and Omega, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the Lamb of God, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God, and he is the Son of man. So magnificent, so vast is the greatness of his glory, that the prophets who foretold his coming and the apostles who told of his ministry could not find enough words to describe him. In addition to the many titles that the prophets and the apostles used, there is another source of these important titles, and it is Christ himself. In this gospel, the Gospel of John, Jesus gives us a total of seven I am statements that both reveal who Jesus is and reveal why he has come, who he is and why he has come. Up to this point, Jesus has already given us two of these self-proclaimed titles. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he said, I am the light of the world. In this chapter, chapter 10, he will reveal two more titles. And one of these titles in particular is one of the most endearing and most reassuring of all his self-proclaimed titles. In this chapter, Jesus will declare, I am the good shepherd. For those who believe and therefore understand that we are the sheep of his pasture, this is a meaningful and beloved title. It tells us that as our shepherd, Jesus cares for and protects those who are his own. 
As Jesus describes his role as shepherd, he will explain that he does these things as a shepherd, not out of obligation or of duty, but because he loves us. In fact, so deep is his love that he is willing to lay down his life for us. Yes, he is the good shepherd. If we were living in the first century Israel, we would have an up-close knowledge of sheep herding. But owing to our suburban, modern lifestyles, we don't have much experience with shepherding. Fortunately, in many parts of the world, including the Middle East, there are still shepherds who are caring for their flocks in exactly the same way that shepherds did in Jesus' day. Today, we are going to focus on the opening paragraph in which Jesus speaks about shepherds and their sheep. And John describes this opening paragraph as an illustration. As we consider this illustration, we will need to depend on those who have observed today's shepherds still using ancient techniques. And it is important that we have this background information because the imagery that Jesus uses in this opening illustration will inform us as Jesus draws important spiritual parallels throughout this chapter. Before we explore this opening paragraph, this opening illustration, I'd like us to do an overview of what is ahead of us and how it fits in with the flow of John's gospel. In the previous chapter, as we well know, the story centered on the man born blind. The primary theme of that account was to show the works of God. Jesus gave this man both his physical sight and his spiritual sight. And it was this spiritual sight that allowed the man to declare, Lord, I believe. But there was also a secondary theme in the previous chapter, and it concerned what occurs when Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, and that is division. We saw division among the neighbors, and then we saw division among the Pharisees. The division among the Pharisees was especially heated as the religious leaders of Jerusalem debated whether or not Jesus was a sinner. Why? because he healed on the Sabbath. While the theme of division was secondary in the previous chapter, here in chapter 10, the issue of division moves front and center. As Jesus reveals who he is and why he has come, some will believe they will be on this camp. But most in Israel especially because of the leadership of these blind guides, will oppose Jesus and do so violently, thus the division. 
In terms of an overview, let's notice that after Jesus gives his opening illustration about the shepherd and his sheep in verses 1 through 5, Jesus will then go on to make not just one, but two I am statements. If we look at verse 7, Jesus says, I am the door. Some may have gate. I am the door of the sheep. If we look at verse 11, Jesus goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. And then in the verses to follow, he further defines what he means to be the good shepherd, including the crucial statement that continues verse 11. At the end of verse 11, after Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Crucial statement. As Jesus declares that he is the good shepherd, this title makes an important implication. If he is the good shepherd, that implies that there are bad shepherds, right? If he is the good shepherd, that implies that there are bad shepherds. Jesus will draw a series of contrasts between himself and these bad, or better yet, these false shepherds. He will speak at length about how his sheep know his voice and therefore they follow him. But there are other shepherds, false shepherds, who mislead the sheep. And these false shepherds mislead their sheep and those who follow these false shepherds will be led to their doom. Let's have a look, please, at verse 10. As Jesus draws a contrast between all who threaten the sheep and the benefit of being led by the good shepherd. At verse 10, Jesus says, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. And then Jesus draws a direct contrast as he describes what he will do as the good shepherd. He says in verse 10, I have come that they may have life, his sheep, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I don't think it is possible to draw a contrast that is any more different than that any more opposed. One comes to kill and destroy, while Jesus comes to give life. In the verses that follow, Jesus will continue to lay out what he means when he refers to himself as the good shepherd. And as he does, two things will become apparent. That is for those who have eyes to see. Jesus is the Christ, and he is the Son of God. But as Jesus speaks the truth, there is one thing that we have come to anticipate. Whenever Jesus speaks the truth, there will be division. Look, please, at verse 19. As John announces this, therefore there was division again. John says, 
there was division again among the Jews, Jews probably referring to the religious leaders, because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad, meaning he's insane. That's what they thought. Why do you listen to him? Others, however, said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Notice the counter argument made by the second group. They refer to the ability of Jesus to give sight to the blind. Therefore, some biblical commentators suggest that this teaching about Jesus being the good shepherd comes immediately after the events described in the previous chapter where we met the man born blind. In this view, the Pharisees and the blind man are still on hand to hear this teaching. And it is said the formerly blind man, now a believer, is among the sheep of Christ's pasture. While this assessment of the blind man is accurate, he is one of the sheep of Christ's pasture, there is a difficulty in suggesting that this scene takes place immediately following the previous scene. If we look at the next verse, verse 22, we are given a timestamp. Verse 22 says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. In the previous section, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And we will recall that the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a harvest festival, took place in the fall. This feast, the Feast of Dedication, takes place in the winter. This feast of dedication is also known by another name, its Hebrew name, and that name is Hanukkah. When we are celebrating Christmas, Hanukkah is approximately the same time, in the winter. Therefore, approximately three months have passed between the Feast of Tabernacles and this feast of dedication. And while we are on the subject of chronology, three months from this point, three months after the Feast of Dedication, will come another feast, the Feast of Passover. And it is during the Passover that Jesus will be nailed to the cross. But right now, it is winter, and Jerusalem is celebrating Hanukkah. And in a moment, we will explore why this celebration is called the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. And so it appears that between chapter 9 and chapter 10, approximately three months have passed. Did Jesus remain in Jerusalem for those three months? Or did he leave and return? That is the more likely scenario, but we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that even though it is now three months later, the healing of the man born blind is still fresh on the minds of many, including the religious authorities. As the Apostle John provides this timestamp 
telling us it is the Feast of Dedication and that this feast is now being celebrated in Jerusalem. It reminds us of an important feature of John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, the revelations that Jesus makes about himself are often tied to the festivals that are being celebrated at that particular moment. On several occasions, Jesus takes key imagery from the feast at hand and he uses that imagery to explain who he is and why he has come. Three months ago, during the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, one of the features of that celebration was the lighting of a series of enormous oil lamps. Multiple oil lamps were lit inside the temple. And the combined effect of these multiple enormous lamps was to project a bright light into the night sky. The purpose of that light was to remind the people that during the Exodus, God went before Israel as a what? A pillar of light. Jesus employed that imagery when he declared of himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, Three months later, during the Feast of Dedication, this event prompts Jesus to declare, I am the Good Shepherd. We will depend on Gary Berge to explain how, and I will be quoting from his commentary on John. The celebration that we know as Hanukkah was relatively new during the first century in Jesus' time. And that is because the events that gave rise to the celebration took place during that 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, 300 years before Christ, before Rome rose to its supreme power, the area that we know as the Middle East was ruled by the Greek king and military conqueror, Alexander the Great. And under Alexander's rule, the influence of Greek culture was pervasive. Greek influence in the Middle East was so enormous that it had a tremendous impact on the Jewish people. And many people largely adopted the Greek way of life. Within 150 years, Israel adopted numerous cultural and even religious habits. The scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, were translated into Greek known as the Septuagint. And why? Because the majority of Jews could no longer read Hebrew. So pervasive was the influence of the Greek culture. Consequently, a growing resistance movement called the Hasidim rose up 
to oppose the increasing threat that Greek culture posed. These reformers wanted to preserve the Jewish religion and the Jewish culture, but they were met with opposition by Greeks living in Israel, but also by Jews who had compromised their faith in favor of adopting the Greek ways of life. A number of corrupt priests whose interest was not in God, but in their own appetites, sold out effectively and contributed to the demise of the Jewish temple worship in Jerusalem. Therefore, Greek soldiers desecrated the temple with pig's blood. They burned the scrolls of scripture and erected a pagan idol in the temple. Approximately 160 years before Christ, the Maccabean War broke out. This war pitted conservative Jewish fighters against the occupying Greeks and those Jews who had adopted foreign ways. Its first leader, Judas Maccabeus, captured Jerusalem's temple, and listen, in 165 BC, he rededicated the temple. Hanukkah is a Hebrew word that means dedication. And Hanukkah became the name of this winter festival that remembered these events. Thus, Hanukkah is the feast of dedication, or more accurately, the feast of rededication, as these reformers rededicated the temple to restore it from Greek influence. And so concludes this commentator, Berge. Hanukkah became a season that asked hard questions about failed leadership and false shepherds. How did the temple leaders lose their way during this Greek period? During the week, while Jesus was giving his good shepherd sermon, the synagogues were reading from such texts as Ezekiel 34 that we heard this morning as the service was opened. This prophetic text from Ezekiel foretold Israel's failed leadership. This is from Ezekiel 34.2. Let me re, um, reread part of the text. God says this through Ezekiel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who take care only of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock, meaning the people? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. Talking about false shepherds and their exploitation. As Jesus speaks during the Feast of Dedication and declares himself as the Good Shepherd, he is declaring himself as the Messiah who has come to deliver his people. And this includes saving his people 
from the predations of false teachers and ravenous wolves, and then guide his own into the safety of his eternal pasture, which is the kingdom of God. Let's go, please, to John chapter 10, verse 1. John 10, verse 1, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus begins his illustration by speaking about a sheepfold. Some have sheep pen. This is where sheep are temporarily corralled, typically at night. In our minds, we might picture a fence, perhaps a split rail fence, the kind we see around here where they keep horses behind the split rail fence. But in first century Israel, a sheepfold was constructed of the most plentiful material available, rocks, lots of rocks. We can picture a stone wall, at least chest high, probably higher. And on top of that stone wall were placed branches loaded with thorns, the equivalent of our modern barbed wire. The sheep pen was not so much to keep the sheep in, but to keep predators out. The sheep were kept behind this walled enclosure to protect the sheep from such predators as wolves. The sheepfold was especially necessary at night when both the sheep and the shepherds needed to sleep. And it was at night when the wolves would use the cover of darkness to attack. In this wall, there was intentionally constructed only one entrance or exit, as the case may be. In this opening, Jesus says there is a door, or alternatively, some translations have gate. Sometimes this opening would be blocked by a door. Sometimes it would not. Sometimes the shepherd himself would position himself in this opening in the wall, and he himself, the shepherd, would serve as the door. And it is this feature that will allow Jesus to later declare, I am the door. But either way, whether there was a door or not, whoever was responsible for the sheep would remain in the doorway and anything that wanted to get to the sheep would first have to go through the shepherd. Adding to the danger of this environment is that it was not only predatory animals that posed a threat to the sheep. While a wolf could not climb a stone wall that surrounded the sheep, wicked people could scale a wall. That is why Jesus, after speaking of the sheepfold, speaks of two kinds of entering. The first is an unauthorized, illegitimate entering. In verse 1, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I tell you the truth, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up 
some other way is a thief and a robber. And we, as we will see, and we heard earlier as we previewed verse 10, such thieves intend to do what? Rob, kill, and destroy. Now, we would expect the words rob and kill because a thief might want to steal an animal in order to kill it, in order to eat it. But what is unexpected is the word destroy. Rob, kill, and destroy. This might imply, this word destroy, might imply killing, not to fulfill a need for, for such things as food, but to kill or destroy merely for the pleasure of killing. This suggests demonic, even satanic motives, for Satan is a destroyer. In contrast to this unauthorized and illegitimate entrance, Jesus speaks of the authorized and rightful entrance. Only the shepherd may rightfully enter the sheep pen. Verse 2. But he who enters by the, by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Here, Jesus implies that he is the shepherd. But what he implies here will be made explicit later in verse 11 when our Lord declares, I am the good shepherd. Let's go please to verses 3 and 4. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. In this part of the illustration, a new character is introduced, the doorkeeper or alternatively, the gatekeeper. From an agricultural perspective, we can deduce the likely role of the gatekeeper or doorkeeper. It was not unusual for several shepherds to combine their flocks at night and place them in a sheep pen for safekeeping. And if there were several shepherds, let's say there were three shepherds, only one would need to guard the gate for the night while the other shepherds slept. And then in the morning, or even at night, when the gatekeeper recognized the shepherd, the gatekeeper would permit the shepherd to enter through the gate. Now, even though we know this is an illustration that pictures a deeper spiritual meaning, it is unclear what the doorkeeper figure points to. It's unclear because Jesus does not explain who this doorkeeper or gatekeeper represents. Some scholars suggest, therefore, that in an illustration such as this, it is not necessary that every element in the illustration have a corresponding spiritual meaning. However, some scholars suggest it does have a corresponding spiritual meaning. This gatekeeper, they say, may refer to God the Father, 
who during Christ's ministry is the one who certifies the truth that Jesus is the shepherd, the good shepherd. While the meaning of the gatekeeper is uncertain, what is unmistakably clear is that the shepherd is the key character in this illustration. And we know the shepherd is the key character by virtue of the fact that the shepherd points to Christ, the good shepherd. According to verse 3, when the shepherd enters the sheepfold, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And so it is not just the gatekeeper who recognizes the shepherd. The sheep are also able to recognize the shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and even more importantly, according to verse 4, they know his voice. When the sheep hear his voice, we are given some important details. He calls out his own sheep, calls them by name, and he leads them out. And so the shepherd does not call the sheep in general. He doesn't make a sweeping call. What does he do? He calls his own sheep. This indicates that what is in view is that there, are, there is more than one flock in this pen. Therefore, we are told very specifically that the shepherd calls his own sheep. He calls only the sheep that belong to him. A journalist and pioneering travel writer by the name of Henry Morton gives an interesting personal observation that will help here. In his book, which was written in 1931, called The Historical Geography of the Holy Land, Morton writes this. Early one morning, I saw an extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had evidently spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed together, and the time had come for the shepherds to go their different directions. One of the shepherds stood some distance from the sheep and began to call. First one, then another, then four or five animals ran towards him, and so on, until he had counted his whole flock. The sheep know their shepherd's voice. Jesus also tells us that the shepherd calls them each by name. Even today, it is said that when a lamb is born, the shepherd will give that lamb a name, and in time, that lamb will learn its name, and it will come when its name is called. This agricultural detail allows us to draw another spiritual correspondence, it reminds us of the individual relationship that every believer has with Christ. He doesn't call us as a single group. He doesn't call us en masse. He calls us one by one, and he calls us each by name because he knows us. And he calls us by name because he loves us. He is the good shepherd. 
In verse 4, we are told that when the shepherd brings out his own sheep. Notice this, here's the detail for the second time. His own sheep. Back in verse 4. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. We find here an important detail about one of the features of the good shepherd. He goes before them. He goes out in front of them in order to lead them. He doesn't drive the sheep, meaning to drive the sheep would mean to go behind the sheep and poke them and prod them and yell at them. No, he doesn't drive the sheep. He leads them. He goes before them, and with his voice, he calls them, come. He calls them to follow, and his own do follow as he leads the way. He goes first to lead the way because he is there in the front leading the way to show us the way and to protect us and care for us as we go. And as his sheep go, as we go together, the good shepherd is ready to lay down his life for the sheep because he loves them all and he knows them all by name. After Jesus speaks of the shepherd who is known by his sheep, he now speaks of the one who is unknown to the sheep. He calls this one a stranger. Let's look, please, at verse 5. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The first thing I'd like to point out is the phrase, by no means. By no means will they follow a stranger. In the Greek text, that appears as a double negative. And a double negative construction indicates the impossibility of the matter. Meaning, by no means, it is impossible that they will follow a stranger. From our perspective, we can see that Jesus is alluding to the threat that is caused by false shepherds. By those religious leaders who will mislead the sheep. And for those sheep who are misled, who are led astray, they will be led to their own doom. Jesus says, when the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Let's make an important distinction. Those who do not belong to Christ will be misled. But this statement that the sheep will by no means follow a stranger, is limited to those particular sheep that Jesus has now twice referred to as his own. You see, his own, those who belong to Christ, cannot be misled. For those who know Christ and know his word and will therefore recognize his voice, his own cannot be deceived. They will know when false shepherds and their false teachings are seeking to deceive. And furthermore, Jesus says, for those who are his own, 
who are the sheep of his flock, they will not merely ignore the voice of the stranger, but will instead flee from him. Friends, this is an important principle. It emphasizes the importance of us knowing God's word so that we can recognize false teachers, so we can recognize the false teaching of the world and the deceiving voices of these false shepherds. And when we hear their voices of deceit, we don't simply ignore it. This illustration tells us we are to flee from it. Flee from the false teaching of these false shepherds. Let's look finally at verse 6 as the Apostle John inserts an editorial comment. Jesus, John says, Jesus used this illustration, but they, presumably the religious leaders, did did not understand the things which he spoke to them. This makes explicit what we've already assumed. This discussion about a shepherd and his sheep is not a lecture on agricultural practices. It's an illustration. The images that Jesus presents are meant to symbolically portray a deeper spiritual reality. The Greek word that appears here and is translated for us as illustration is not the word that we see in the other synoptic gospels. And that word we find in those other synoptic gospels is the word parable. That's not the word we find here. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus explains to his disciple that he uses parables to reveal his meaning to his followers, but to conceal his meaning from those who oppose him. John says here in verse 6 that they, presumably the religious leaders, do not understand the things which he spoke to them, which is strange since the religious leaders live in a time and environment where there were shepherds everywhere and they would have understood the principles of shepherding and sheep herding. And so what they did not understand was not the agricultural aspect of this illustration, but the spiritual applications that were being pointed to. So they're very familiar with shepherding, and they're smart enough to make the connection that Jesus might be making a spiritual point. And so it tells us the issue is not an intellectual one. It's it's an issue of spiritual blindness, of of hard-heartedness. You see, the the, the religious leaders are, are so full of hate toward Jesus, and they are so full of themselves that they don't want to understand his words. It may be that the reason John refers to this opening description not as a parable, but as an illustration, is because Jesus will go on to explain the meaning of this illustration. And he'll explain it both to his disciples and even to the religious leaders who are standing there. Now, for we who believe, we're grateful that Jesus is the good shepherd. He leads us through the gate of eternal security into the pasture of his eternal life. But for those who reject him, who will not be led by Christ, who want to be their own leaders, we will see a very different, very violent response. A response that seeks to rob, kill, and destroy. 
as Jesus explains yet again who he is and why he has come, these religious leaders, they will understand his claims. They will understand his claims that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God, but they will reject those claims. They will understand the claims, but they will reject those claims, and therefore they will reject Jesus' offer of salvation. Let's end with one more look ahead as we gain more of an overview of what lays before us in this chapter. Let's look finally at verse 31. Verse 31. Then the Jews, presumably the religious leaders, took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. For those who are the sheep of his pasture, who can, like the man whose eyes were open, who can say, Lord, I believe. We know that this is precisely who Jesus is. He is God himself, who took the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men to be for us the good shepherd, who laid down his life for us, so that all who believe may have everlasting life in his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we are greatly blessed to have you as the good shepherd. You lead us, you care for us, and you protect us by your word and by your presence. Because of your great love for us, the sheep of your pasture. And day by day we follow you as you lead us to your everlasting kingdom. Amen.